Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. All right. Hello and welcome back, everyone, to the American Reformer Podcast. You may not recognize my voice. This is actually Josh Abitoy. Um, the erstwhile executive director, still the executive director. You probably thought I was gone. Um, I've been in the wind uh, for almost a month now. I had a family vacation and then went out to the Claremont Institute and did their Lincoln Fellowship. That uh, that's probably going to drive our conspiracy theory conspiracy theory friends wild. And then I actually had to go out of pocket once again. Uh, to run American Reformers Fellowship Program, the Cotton Mather Fellowship, uh, which we just wrapped up. Um, I am joined today by Tymon Klein. Uh, Tymon, uh, the the executive uh, editor of American Reformer. Um, Tymon, I understand that uh, you held everything down uh, in my absence. Yeah, we held the fort down, had a couple uh, key, very good guests in your absence to uh, pick up the slack. And um, I kept promising our listeners that you would be back, and so that now that they uh, know my word is good, um, ready to get going again with some uh, hot hot discussion here about some hot topics. Wonderful. Well, thanks for joining today. All right. So um, speaking of hot topics, so we're going to talk about the philosophy of foundationalism today. Um, this is an apparently a very well. Apparently, everybody's reading it, and it's sort of the, fa- the philosophy behind the Christian nationalist movement. Um, I was uh, very interested to learn uh, just a week and a half ago. Um, there is, uh, there's this man named Charles Haywood, who is a retired, uh, wealthy entrepreneur who now runs a blog called The Worthy House, and he reviews lots of interesting books. And I guess at some point about two years ago, wrote... Uh, what he calls the Foundationalist Manifesto. Um, This has all come to light in the last couple of weeks. He's been getting in Twitter spats with James Lindsay. Um, This prompted uh, digging into Charles, and it was discovered that he is the, he he founded a chapter of an organization called uh, the frightening name of the Society for American Civic Renewal. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have a website with a mission statement that calls for things like an American Renaissance, which is all just very horrifying. Um, it's, it's an organization for Christian men who are interested in um, renewing American civic society. Um, and then it was discovered that um, my business partner, uh, chairman of American Reformers Board, Nate Fisher, has a chapter of, of this organization in Dallas. Um, and so this just sent everybody digging and digging. And, and there, was a, there was an article in The Guardian like a week ago that was doing a takedown of Haywood's uh, philosophy, just a breathless expose of this terrible foundationalism uh, philosophy that he promotes. And then most recently, um, in fact, just yesterday morning, Josh Bice dropped a very long tweet. It, it's basically one of those, could have been an article, but it's a tweet type deals. Um, and in this, he kind of expressly linked Haywood to Nate Fisher and then linked Nate Fisher to Christian nationalism, all in sort of an apparent attempt to say that 
you know, foundationalism is creepy and foundationalism is this important philosophy that undergirds Christian nationalism. So we're here to talk about all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Timon, you saw Bice's tweet. What were your initial impressions? Yeah, I did see um, his his tweet. Um, and again, like, like the other, you know, reporting, the, instead of... In, engaging with the ideas right off the bat and kind of earnestly he has to condition the entire uh you know his his whole shtick his whole his whole spiel here um by reminding everybody you know there's this super secret society that's super scary and uh you know you should all be worried about it and also here's the ideas right so he's conditioning kind of the rollout and the uh, the, the sort of demonstration of why this is problematic by already trying to scare you. Um, of course, with, with I, I mean, I think I tweeted out the thread and said, look, you know, Josh Bice has read The Guardian because there was no new information there, but he kind of had this breaking news feel to it. Um, but when he does get into the, the foundationalism itself, which he gives very brief kind of, uh, you know, choice quotes that, that he thinks are are scary and offensive and eventually comes down to the ninth pillar in particular, which is about Christian religion. And that's where he starts asking these, these questions that he wants answered from Christian nationalists, I guess. I mean, both Charles Haywood and Nate Fisher have, have not embraced Mm -hmm. the Christian nationalist label. So I'm not really sure where he's getting that, but in any case. Yeah. And we should be clear, like, Amref hasn't embraced that label either. Right. I mean, we publish we publish Christian nationalists. We p- publish people who argue with them. Um, we want to be a good source for discussion, but we're we're sort of Switzerland, except to the extent we're willing to platform the debate, mm-hmm. which I guess marks us out as targets uh, merely for that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so let's let's jump into the questions here. I, I mean. Uh, they, I think, betray um, the fact that a lot of this discussion, uh, you know, Josh Bice is really coming to this discussion as an outsider who hasn't read a lot of this stuff and doesn't have the analytical frameworks in place to kind of evaluate it entirely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he's kind of, he's scared by it, but I think misunderstands a little bit of what's going on here. And, um, you know, I should say too, Josh Bice and his ministry G3, I mean, this is a, this is a group that uh, splintered off from the Southern Baptist Convention several years back over concerns about the SBC's liberal drift. The main issue um, driving that, as far as I can tell, was CRT. Um, these guys are they're conservative uh, Christians. They are, um, you know, they've done some they've done some really good stuff in the past. Um, so you know, it's it's. Uh, it is a bit frustrating to having to be deal with these sort of having to deal with these sort of uh, relatively out of the blue critiques. Um, but uh, in any event, um, here, here's some questions that that Bice poses, and and the first one is he asks, "What happens to the Constitution of the United States of America?" Presumably, he means here under foundationalism. Um, so, time and I'm sure you're full of thoughts on this. My initial thought is actually. Um, well, twofold. One, I would say that foundationalism is closer to the founding intent than whatever current order we have right now. And, and let me explain that a little bit. Um, Haywood is actually in his manifesto, he's, he's very ambivalent about the government or the form of the governmental structure that would be needed 
to implement foundationalism. He's, he does say in one place that the foundationalist regime will be a mixed regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't know, a mixed regime is a concept that comes from Aristotle and Plato, um, one that our founders were deeply familiar with. Um, and they intended when they set up our, our constitution to create a mixed regime. What does that mean? It means it's a government that has the functions of um, democracy, the functions of aristocracy, and the functions of monarchy, um, all kind of held together in various, um, in one regime, in various functions. And you can go read, uh, I think John Adams is probably the most articulate on this point. If you go and read his commentaries on the Constitution, he talks at length about this. So in as much as, I mean, just right off the bat, foundationalism is closer to that founding intent, especially in contrast to the way that modern people talk about our constitution, which is, well, it's our democracy. It's a pure democracy. At least that would be the ideal. They want to, you know, we've already shed the the 17th amendment, um, which uh, was one distortion to our order. We've created this unwieldy administrative state, which arguably is a corrupted aristocracy, um, i.e. an oligarchy. And then, um, you know, and then we've got people running around now who want to do away with the electoral college because it's not purely representative. They want to do away with the Senate because it's not purely representative. So, um, anyways, I find foundationalism actually to be much closer to the founding intent. But what what do you think? Yeah, no, that that's right. Um, just to piggyback off off what you've already said. So, so one, we would say Haywood's general posture towards the governmental form. Um, it is very classical and certainly one shared by the founders. So just because the founders landed the plane somewhere doesn't mean that they weren't governed by a prudentialist and teleological approach to governance, meaning that the ends are in view and must be accomplished in whatever form of government is most conducive to those ends, given the context, you know, the moment in history and the people that you're governing and what they've been conditioned to expect or, or operate under, um, is that's the form that is, is best for uh, governance at that time. So being generally agnostic um, while also recognizing, you know, power dynamics, all these sorts of things. Um, so this is, this is to think as the founders did insofar as they were, um, you know, classical political theorists and classical legal theorists. So, so doing that is, is, engaging in a sort of inquiry that again you know is high level it, it does require a certain um familiarity with these these ways of thinking and certain analytical frameworks but it is exactly what the founders did and so um you know the the other point you you've brought up already is that where haywood lands in an ideal world is exactly where the founders did is which is a mixed government now a mixed government again, is a very basic, very basic parameter. So it doesn't, a mixed government could look different than our mixed government does in terms of functionality. But the basic idea is the mixing of the forms to have them counteract and, and support each other at the same time. Um, and that is indeed what America has under the constitutional orders. Just people like to pretend there's not a monarchical function there as well, right? But there is. Um, and there's plenty of, plenty of documentation to prove that. So, so very unoffensive what Haywood's saying so far with his approach to government being generally agnostic, but that a mixed form is best and that he um, simply wants 
the government in whatever way it's set up to function in a way that is conducive to higher and more important ends than pure procedure, right? Very, um, should be something that everyone should endorse, actually. We're not even talking yet about, you know, ripping anything down. It's simply saying, actually, an argument could be made, which is what you're, you're saying, Josh, that everything foundationalism once could be accomplished or achieved under the form of government we have if it were properly functioning according to its original intent. Yeah, and, and to park on that last point for a second, when Bice asks what happens to the Constitution, mm -hmm. I would like to know which Constitution he has in mind. Oh, James like Lindsay, the original Constitution. You can't, you can't bring up this up. Well, I understand, but we've got to we've got to bring it up because the Constitution is currently enforced and interpreted is mediated to us through Justice Earl Warren, who had a legacy of these extremely aggressive cases mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s that blew open the Bill of Rights. These are the cases where he said that the Bill of Rights actually allow the federal government to stop in to step in and stop states from prohibiting um use of contraceptives, mm -hmm. that they stop states from legislating against sodomy, that they, um, of course, well, Roe versus Wade is a famous mm -hmm. case in this line of cases, uh, thankfully now overturned. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, they said that they said that uh, states could not, uh, you know, have prayer at a public school. Mm -hmm. They said that state that states could not ban pornography or certain types of profanity because that was protected speech under the First Amendment. And what I, what I want people to understand, and I'm not sure everybody fully grasps, is that none of that was the case in this country for, two, for basically 200 years. And then in the, late, in the mid to late 20th century, Justice Earl Warren and a couple of his buddies just went hog wild finding these fictional rights all over the place, empowering the federal government to strip states of the ability to engage in what were traditionally known as the police powers. Mm -hmm. And... So when we hear this question, what happens in the Constitution, if, if we're saying, well, the Constitution as interpreted from 1960 on is getting scrapped, I would say, great, sign me up. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, no, this is a very important point. I mean, it's been made. This It's not like we're breaking new ground here. It's just that I think, in, at least in our uh, Christian, generally conservative circles, it doesn't seem to be making an impact or being grasped, is that you know, the, the world we, the constitutional order we live in as, you know, as experienced now is, is extreme, is completely foreign to the, the original model set up. And what you've pointed to, and this is not some kind of secessionist, you know, state rights thing in that way. This is hearkening back to the original federalist dual sovereignty kind of model where the states were to act as the central moral loci in the Republic and to enforce um, things having to do with morals, with with religion, with even health policy, right? All the sanitation, all these things. The domestic policy, the internal policy, was was preserved for the states because, um, not for any magical reason, but you would see the anti-federalists simply saying, "Look, a national legislature can't possibly be accountable to or in tune with a." Um, you know, with, with the people of the states, they're too far removed. So they're not going to be able to legislate well. And we would say today, legislation in Texas should look different than North Dakota should look different than New York. There's just different people, different things that need to happen. So these are very basic, you know, 
points to be made about the original constitutional order that have been subverted in the 20th century and have led to um, not only the problems we have now, but the rapidity of those problems. The, it, it expedited certain trends um, because it was uh, you could then legislate across the board so much easier, um, usually from judicial fiat, which makes it even uh, simpler. So the, yes, um, what happens to the constitution? Well, which constitution? And are you talking, you know, Josh Weiss, about um, the purely functional aspects, the structure, or are you talking about the Bill of Rights and how those have been interpreted um, in, in recent memory? Because, or are you talking about the original constitution as it stood for the first 150, 200 years? Yep, yep. Um, all right, we've beaten that up pretty well. Um, okay, the 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 next question that Bice asks is, what happens when my Christianity does not square with the form of Christianity officially sponsored by the state and society under Haywood's Foundationalism America? Right. Okay. So this is um, dealing with the ninth. As best ninth I can tell. Yeah. Yeah, that's the ninth pillar of Haywood's manifesto. And as best I can tell, Haywood doesn't go nearly as far as most proponents of Christian nationalism. The basic, the basic sense is he says, yes, Christianity will be uh, preferred in some ways. It, it, you know, there would be some sort of soft establishment mm-hmm. where um, he, doesn't, he doesn't specify any particular branch. He just says, you know, Christianity would be officially recognized. Uh, presumably that means, you know, uh, high school football coaches would be allowed to pray before games and things like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, but then also he says uh, minority religions are going to have uh, freedom of, you know, the freedom to, to worship as long as they're, as long as practicing their religion doesn't interfere with public morality mm-hmm. or civic virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, so help me out here, Tim. I mean, it seems to me like Haywood's framework is about where, you know, David Van Drunen and, um, you know, Jonathan Lehman are, maybe with some minor exceptions. But, I mean, essentially he's advocating for enforcement of what the magisterial reformers would call the second table of the law, like the aspects of God's law that relate to purely sort of um, human uh, dynamics and not trying to get into, uh, not trying to orient, you know, not trying to force people by law to, you know, the proper object of worship and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, no, I mean, with, with some slight adjustments, you know, someone like Lehman, maybe, maybe our friend Andrew Walker wouldn't, wouldn't like this idea of the official kind of recognition of Christian something, whatever that means, but that's neither here nor there in terms of how this plays out because they're perfectly fine with the second table of the law being um, a guide to all, um, you know, to all civic laws um, that we would have. And basically, you know, the way Haywood puts this is Christian virtue will be the uh, the metric or the the measuring rod for, you know, moral legislation, which which most of legislation is um, very uncontroversial, even for many Baptists today. Um, you know, Josh Bice would be much happier in this regard with Charles Haywood as maximum leader over him than, than as myself as maximum leader over him. Um, so so the foundationalism may be a preferable model for for Josh. But um you know, this is again. This this harkens back since we are already talking about the original um, constitutional order. Um, you have someone like Joseph Story in uh, you know Supreme Court um, case law in his commentaries 
um, same same thing with other jurists all the way up through the 19th century, talking about how a, a general Christianity is what governed um, the morals of the people. It was part of the common law as that sort of moral framework that you refer to. And it doesn't have to be denomination specific, although the, at the time the country was overwhelmingly Protestant. Um, you know, Haywood doesn't even go as far in this manifesto as a majority of the states would have in the late 18th century, right? He's not even talking about religious tests for office. He's not making you affirm the Trinity, certainly doesn't make you affirm the Filioque, right? Um, because he's Eastern Orthodox. So he's not even as technical in that way. All he's saying is, which, which the majority of our states had something in that regard. All he's saying is a general Christianity should govern the morals of the people and should be reflected in the law and it should be privileged. Um, the people who are dissenters, as long as they do not, if, through their public action, threaten the populace or break those or, or become unvirtuous, which, you know, much of this is still reflected, at least technically in Supreme Court uh, precedent today. It's why we can't have, you know, human sacrifices and things. As long as people do that, though, then they're good to go. I'll give them as, as much religious freedom as they want. They just, um, but there's going to be, you know, in his model, a social stigma that kind of governs these things, which is is produced almost naturally unless you are someone like Russell Moore that that actively wants to destroy a cultural Christianity. So he's not even talking much about about legal enforcement in this section. It's really more of about if the culture or society that he envisions as being preferable. Yeah. So so once again, he's in respect to this particular question, Haywood is closer to founding ideals by a long shot than our current society yeah. is. But he's actually, if anything, he's a little bit more liberal than our founding he's, ideals. He's more lenient than- On the question. Yeah, he's more lenient than yeah. the majority of the states would have been. I mean, even in places like Pennsylvania where you have no official establishment. I mean, the Quakers, we don't think of them this way, but they ruled Philadelphia like with an iron fist. Like the social strength, the soft power uh, was, was very Quaker friendly, yeah. right? So- um, it's just different. We don't we don't think of it that way. But he's more lenient, yes, than most of the the states would have been at the founding era, and you know even places like Tennessee, which explicitly rejected an establishment, was still heavily you know Christian in the way that they their requirements for office and things. Um, and he's you know he's not as liberal as as some of our more extreme founders that were total outliers, but he is more lenient than the uh, the the consensus would have been at the time. Yep. All right. Well, I think we beat that one up pretty well. So let's let's move on. Uh, next question. Uh, from a biblical Christian perspective, does Jesus need secret societies to usher in the new heavens and the new earth as described in Revelation 21? An, Time and I'll let you take this, this one. This is a serious question. Um, it's obviously meant, well, I mean, I yeah. guess he continues a little bit, but I think this is tongue in cheek and a little bit, um, you know, sarcastic, obviously, he's saying. Um, again, he's going back to, as I said before, you know, setting up the entire inquiry with this kind of scary thing about Charles Haywood, the man, before dealing with his his ideas. Um, the obvious answer to this question is no. Um, Christ and the church uh, require, you know, no earthly help to be a perfect society or for for the church to triumph over the gates of hell. Um, again, I, I get annoyed with some of these what I just call pietists. Um, in their politics, where they they constantly revert to these kinds of questions, um, 
away from the practical uh, practical solutions that, that all Christians have to deal with given given the fall and the, the requirements yeah. of government and these sorts of sorts of things. So I, I just it's completely unserious to me. Well, and let me let me just say, I mean, the the it misunderstands what the project of foundationalism is, I mm-hmm. think, and it misunderstands what the project of Christian nationalism is in some ways. Yeah. As I understand it, all of these movements are talking about the civil magistrate. This is a this is an office, you know, magistrate is this old term that reformed that the reformers used to talk about mm-hmm. somebody that holds government power. Right. And um, their job is not to usher in the new heavens and the new mm-hmm. earth. Their job is uh, their, their jurisdiction is created in Romans 13. It's to reward evil and punish mm-hmm. good. And that's, that's when, when we talk about as Christians who have political vocations, when we talk about, talk about those and how we exercise those faithfully and, and all of this, um, we're talking about a, you know, we're talking about a duty that sounds in the temporal realm. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is not, we don't understand that government, you know, government actors are like directly, you know, have some direct causal role in ushering in the eschaton. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not that, I mean, the things that are confusing people like Vice is that what, what much of the commentary these days on the, on the Christian right is talking about is the the religious or spiritual role that magistrates have, right? That's something that we're we've discussed. These are it's being recovered in certain ways to at least be a, um, a, a again a topic for inquiry. Um, but that is there's no you'll find no magisterial reformer saying that that any particular even even though you know there's eschatological purpose in everything, and you can find this in Daniel and Revelation and all these things. There's no sense in which the magistrate is is guaranteeing or uh, ushering in, you know, Christ's kingdom in that eschatological way. Rather, he's acting according to duty based on the power and the source of his power that God's given him for the good of of spiritual beings who have not only a temporal good, but a a eternal and spiritual good that is, is the ultimate good. And so it's how do you properly recognize that and govern accordingly um, in the interim because God has set you up to do so. So it's, I mean, this kind of question where, I mean, he's not even talking about government here. Now he's making the joke about the secret societies thing, right? Which is um, hilarious. But uh, your point is is much more serious. And I think that is lost on a lot of people. Um, I'm not sure how, because I think most people writing on it now are trying to be very clear about it. Um, but it does seem to still be an issue. He has a follow-up question that he asks, does Jesus need revolutionaries to usher in his kingdom through chaos and violence? Okay, so we've already said the answer to that is obviously mm-hmm. no. But if let's reframe his question. Um, do followers of Jesus ever, uh, does their political vocation ever require them to be revolutionaries yeah. to institute a just order, mm-hmm. of just political order through chaos and violence? Um. And on this question, I think we have to say the whole tradition and our own founders all agree that there are circumstances under which um, faithful people with political vocations, um, when certain conditions are met, um, have a right and maybe should engage in revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, um, the, <laughs> the nature of, of, 
of governance of political governance is is violence right that's the it's being backed by force that's the source mm-hmm. of the power so power and violence as such are not offensive to to talk about i mean i saw other tweets of you know all they care about is or they keep talking about power that's all it's about it's like well power is a very good thing to recognize and think about its use because it will be used mm-hmm. and so when you have the conditions appropriate for um, we'll just say regime change, right? That's essentially what happens in, in 1776. The current order is not functioning properly. They think certain uh, boundaries have been crossed that shouldn't that are unconstitutional for them. They use force and violence, lamentably so. It's never good, but lamentably, in order to not for the in a gratuitous way, but to reestablish a just order, um, which then in turn is what the the use of force and violence is handed off to to govern justly and for the good of the people. So mm-hmm. this is really, if you're, you know, it always matters what the purposes and ends of the use of violence and force are, but they, if they are good, yeah. then of course, otherwise, you know, we have things like just war theory that is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition, going back to Augustine that talks about how, how and when violence should be used as a fact of, of human fallen life. And so just writing it off as it's ridiculous to talk about these things is, is again, unserious, I think. Yeah. And, and just to, to people who may not know, I mean, the, the, the tradition is pretty much unanimous in saying, you know, in, the, in just war analysis, you have to have a just casus belli, cause mm-hmm. of war. And in the case of revolution, it's, it's sort of subject to similar ethical considerations. But your, your casus belli in the case of a revolution is, um, you know, are you governed by a tyranny? That's that's the that's the test, and tyranny isn't just some loosey goosey phrase. It means are you governed by a government that's ruling, that that is ruling in a way that's destructive of the common mm-hmm. good. Um, so, you know, th- these there's there's lots of resources. There's lots of very smart people who've written long books about the right of revolution and when it gets invoked and all mm-hmm. of this. Now, all that being said. Charles, I don't think, ever asserts or calls for revolution. Mm-hmm. He's actually just engaging in this much more descriptive exercise where he's saying, hey, guys, the current, the current constitutional order is extremely fragile. And as a student of history, I know what tends to come next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't want to be caught, you know, totally unprepared, it would be prudent to start thinking about that now. Yeah. Like there will be big questions, regime level questions over history. These overwhelmingly tend to get resolved by violence. And you need to start thinking about that and be prepared for that. That's very, yeah. he's not, he's not issuing some kind of call to arms, like let's go storm the Capitol or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he's just being, a, I would say, a very prudent student of history. No, that's right. And there's a, there's a couple, a couple things to touch on there that, that have been, swirling around one one i think someone did upload you know haywood went on tucker's show back before he got canceled so several months ago and you know it was a clip where haywood's explicitly saying he does does not like violence it's not it's not enjoyable mm-hmm. to go, to live through chaos and violence um especially mob type you know undirected unled violence of so non-military but but a you know chaotic kind of violence none of that's preferable or good but it could happen and this brings up something you've you just hinted at is you know this sort of anacyclosis uh or cycle of regime theory you know debates um or, or you know conversation and it really freaks some people out and i'm not really sure why 
um, because again, it's something that the founders were were great students of and kind of took as almost an ironclad law of nature um, in that this all political regimes are finite. All of them are imperfect. And typically, here is the way throughout history that um, they transition from one form to the other. When, when it starts to break down, when the current order does, this is XYZ is what typically happens next. Um, again, historically, very unoffensive stuff to talk about. No one's saying, yeah, I would really enjoy it if everything went to hell in a handbasket. That would be tons of fun. That way I could live out some kind of Mad Max fantasy, which is what people cast Haywood is doing. Instead, like you, like you said, all he's doing is what others have done and say, this is, you, you can debate where he, you know, his assessment, but this is where I think we're at. And therefore X, X, Y, Z could come next. And it's important to think about um, when the, when the dust settles, what kind of uh, regime we would, we would like to have. That's it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, why does this upset people so much? It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, it's as American as apple pie. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can actually see it in George Washington's farewell Mm -hmm. address. Um, The founders did this all the time. It was like a hobby for them. I mean, they even speculated about how long is this constitution that we set up going to last 50 years? That would be pretty good. I think Hamilton Um, said 50 years, you know, Jefferson thought we should redo it every generation. Yeah, I mean, it, but but somehow to the modern person, maybe it's because we're all steeped in Francis Fukuyama and we think history has ended. But but people are just horrified, not even by the desire for the current order to change, but even by somebody who says, "Hey, the current order could change, could change pretty soon." Yeah. That is extremely upsetting to people, and it will get you canceled. Yeah, uh, if you're in the kind of place that cancels yeah, people, especially if you pontificate at all based on the the established wisdom, the perennial wisdom. I mean, the reason the yeah. founders were into this is because they're steeped in the classics, right? They read all of these sorts of things, and they're, they're um, there's a great book out there called the uh, uh, the classical tradition, the American mind in the classical tradition. I would encourage everybody to read um, from the '60s, probably. But the 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 point is, when you engage and then you pontificate according to the logic and the established reasoning of how the regimes transition, and say, well, if chaos erupts based on where we're at now, something you would that would probably take to restore order would look very different, such as I don't know, you know, a monarch or something like that. And you just say that, um, as you know, it can cause a bit of a firestorm. Um, and it has nothing to do with what your, what your preferred model would be. I mean, as I know from talking to you a mm-hmm. lot, Josh, you're, you're actually just in lockstep with Michael Anton on this. If you watch that, that discussion he had with Matt Peterson and others, um, about this exact topic, he leads by saying, look, if I had my way, I'm 1776 all day which I really think he, I mean, maybe he says 87. If he says 76, he's like an Articles Confederation guy, but he's, he really means, I want the constitutional order. I want it exactly the way they had it. I think it's great. But if I can't have that, and, and I see that us not returning to that, here's what's basically going to happen, and I'm going to tell you about that. And, I, and you're in lockstep with him in terms of your preference. But if you say something like, hey, you know what it might take to restore order could look a lot more brutal and muscular, and you should just prepare yourself for that. People, people lose their minds, and it's very curious. It, it says to me that they're actually not in touch with the American tradition of political thought as as much as they claim to be. Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental point. I, I do think the. I, I mean, the the 
the kind of society that I raise my hand and ask to join is a free republic with a virtuous citizenry. Mm -hmm. No question. But given where we are right now, we don't return to that through, through ordinary politics. Mm -hmm. You know, getting back to there is, is a project. And, you know, that, that itself was that people that founded America were the result of, you know, a very long-term project of cultivating, developing, improving civic virtue and then corresponding rights and duties of citizens mm -hmm. over centuries. Mm -hmm. And we've set a match to all of that in the last, you know, 70 years with all of our absurd social experimentation and all the rest. Um, so, yeah, but, but that's right. I mean, it's just like, I mean, all we're really doing, and I think what Charles does is just asking people to have a sense of realism about what's mm -hmm. happening. And we, we are skeptics that a vicious citizenry uh, can sustain Republican governance. We also have questions about whether we really have, you know, prudent mixed regime Republican governance like our founders wanted anymore. We're something closer to a pure democracy. Mm -hmm. And you know what? History is full of examples of what happens to pure democracies. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, we've, we've beaten this up pretty yeah. well. I, I want to close with just saying like, I, you know, um, I said this at the start, but like Josh Bice and all these guys, I mean, they're good. They're good, like faithful pastors in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And I, I hope that, you know, like really, I just want them to like not be attacking me or my friends, you know, with kind of these silly things because um, it's just causing totally unnecessary division. It's a distraction and a waste of time. And, you know, if, um, if they wanted to like come on this podcast or talk in another forum, I'm sure we'd be happy to do that, right? I mean, yeah, I would, and, and I assume you would be, too. I would, I would yeah. certainly welcome it. And, and here's one reason why is that, I mean, you mentioned earlier the, the preconditions for the, the type of regime we had in the late 18th century, right? That, that this was a long-term project, that people were conditioned for it uh, to, to operate it. It fit them, right? That was, was the prudence of it, and it was, it was a beautiful product. The, the way those people were conditioned actually goes back, you know, over a century and a half prior to their conditioning on on American soil even. So we can we're, of course, connected to a sort of Anglo-American stream of thought. But the people work and, and there's great historical work on this, but talking about how the people were conditioned for a particular form of republicanism by the time they got to the late. 18th century. And that came predominantly through, not through the pamphlets, not through Thomas Paine, any of those things, but through the preaching and the sermons on an annual basis, repeatedly talking about the themes of just government and virtuous citizenry. And so I think it's very important for pastors who are, are faithful doctrinally, who are conservative morally, to actually get a handle on these things. I don't think it's they're beneath it or something. And to talk about it in an intelligent way and try to condition their people for a the type of regime they would like them to be governed by. Yep. Well, hey, we've got a little more time. I want to shift gears slightly, but um, th this uh, we said at the outset this this whole line of attack is not you know. But, but, I mean, Josh Bice, you know, I don't. I wish they hadn't stepped into it, but. The main driver behind this whole line of attack has been uh, James Lindsay, yeah. um, and uh, he he recorded like some three hour long podcast apparently where he went on and on about Charles and 
new founding and Christian nationalism. I, I haven't listened to it, but have you? I have indeed. I um, for some reason I, I was had a long um, road trip the past week, and for the last three hours, almost exactly. Um, I think it actually was because Charles did tweet it out, and I thought, "Why well, I, I have to listen to this?" Um, I did listen to this this podcast from James Lindsay. It is, as you say, a three hour screed where he goes through Charles's manifesto. He does make it to the end, and he does go it, through it in fairly uh, <laughs> tedious fashion with lots of lots of side comments and all kinds of, of kind of crazy connections he, he tries to make between, you know, things he sees, coded language, uh, you know, secretive symbols, this kind of stuff. Uh, very bizarre. Amazing. Yeah. Um, it's entertaining. I mean, if anyone has three yeah. hours in a road trip, it's, it's certainly entertaining. That's for sure. Um, it seems to me that, you know, the anti-woke, uh, some of the anti-woke guys are I'm trying to figure out what the next thing is mm -hmm. right now. Um, you know, and hey, good for them. You know, James wrote a great book about CRT. Mm -hmm. uh, CRT and wokeness is in some ways on the run. Their brand has been very harmed in no, you know, with no small thanks to guys mm -hmm. like Lindsay and Chris Rufo and others. Um, but, you know, I... I <laughs> These days, to get a lot of clicks or attention on an anti-CRT story, you better have something crazy, yeah. like, you know, all white kids murdered at local <laughs> high school or something. I mean, otherwise, nobody's reading the story. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think because they've, they've almost been so successful, you know, they're almost victims of their own success mm -hmm. in, in, in one way because um, – they've just created very good market awareness of how crazy CRT and mm -hmm. wokeness is out there. Um, now, you know, we're, I mean, I'm anti-woke, you're mm -hmm. anti-woke, but we're also in, interested in sort of an alternative constructive project that invo involves a lot more than merely going back to the nineties. And, you know, I wonder, but just, just from my two cents from where I sit, but it seems like that, it seems like a lot of these anti-woke activists are not entirely sure where to go next, but it seems some of them are pretty interested in um, becoming uh, Christian nationalist critics, um, Nazi hunters, mm -hmm. um, you know, to sort of turning their uh, rhetorical prowess on the right. Yeah. What do you make of no, that? No, I, th I think that's right. Um, I think I endorse the, the sort of narrative you just, you just told about where they're, where they're coming from. And uh, it, it is it is difficult to parse because even though I, I we can lump them kind of in the same camp, James, Lind James Lindsay, Owen Strand, the, these types of people doing some performing similar maneuvers, some, running in similar circles. You know, someone like Lindsay, um, you know, it's not it's not as surprising to me that he's reacting this way because he is self-professedly an atheist and what he thinks is classical liberalism, right? Or his or is his kind of um, pledge that he makes, whereas Strayan, you know, should be or, or would claim to be more in touch with the conservative tradition, although there's no no evidence of it in these discussions. Um, but their constant fil filtration of anything and almost everything, all new cultural phenomenons, all new political debates through the anti-woke lens is doing a disservice to them because these things are not the same, 
right? But they they think that they are, and they will they will say, well, it's just general authoritarianism or something unserious like that. Um, so I, I don't think that they have a good handle on it. They certainly don't have the requisite, uh, have not done the requisite reading to really understand where people are coming from. And, um, and I think that they are leading, they're, they're muddying the waters, um, to be sure. I'm not saying they're all bad actors, but they're muddying the waters. Um, and I think that they should realize this is not the same debate we had several years ago with wokeness and that most people are woke to that issue. And it's, um, you know, we're, as you said, moving on to constructive solutions uh, based on where we see a host of problems leading us, not just wokeness. So they're sort of one trick ponies. They're trying to convert their po pony for a new race. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think like we need to close a, you know, I feel a, a, a burden to close with this. Um, we're, we're running up on our time here, but um you know, we're, we're talking about with Josh Bice and some of these other guys, um, Owen at times has been a pastor. Josh Bice is a pastor. We're talking about a lot of pastors. And so I want to say something, I think, really clearly and expressly that we haven't said yet, but, but it's this. Um, some Christian men have a vocation to be a pastor, and some Christian men have the vocation of political leadership, whether that's actually being a politician or becoming a commentator and a student of politics. I think any Christian man who has children um, or, or has any, you know, loves their neighbor, has any stake in the society, which is really all of us, mm -hmm. to some degree, we have a political vocation. And, you know, this means, I mean, this means substantively pursuing justice and this should be a pressing question for every American Christian because our society is crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're, you know, I mean, you could talk about abortion, which hasn't been a daily, a fact of daily life for 50 years in this country, but should still shock the conscience. Um, or you could talk about, you know, um, the fact that thousands of minors are being uh, chemically castrated every single year um we could go on and on but i mean the 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 we're we're in many ways a very sick society and you know we're not i mean unless you're some kind of a pacifist or, or anabaptist we're called to have an active interest and be prudent students of what's happening and what we can do about it and so i would just say you know this is kind of like my impassioned defense and an appeal to um to pastors is you know it's okay to defer to brothers who study this and have a particular vocation in this subject you don't need to be the expert you should learn because you're going to need to know a lot more about it in the coming years but you don't need to be the expert but you need to find the experts that you align with and that you can work mm -hmm. with and um james Lindsay is not the right expert mm -hmm. Um, James Lindsay is an atheist who thinks it's evil to ban pornography or to uh, have moral laws about homosexuality. He should not be a leader of any kind of Christian movement for civic engagement. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I endorse that fully. And the and the distinction, you know, between as you already expressed appreciation for James's pointing out of you know problems with uh, in his book cynical theories and other work he's done. That's great. Um, that's very different sort of pointing out, um, 
you know, an issue and issue spotting is very different than the, the positive construction, which is um, by definition, a greater leadership role that has to be taken on to do that. And so I would agree. I think you have to vet, um, you know, vet the person leading the charge more than the person sounding the alarm on a discrete issue. Yep. All right. Well, I think we've beat this topic to death. Um, we'll be back soon uh, with more. Um, Timon, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Josh, for coming back. And uh, yeah, perhaps you should thank me <laughs> thank for joining you. Thank you for, you. for I, joining I, me, yeah. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're going to do that. Uh, you know, that uh, this is my podcast now. <laughs> That's right. Meme. I'm the captain now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but uh, thank you to our audience. Um, if you enjoy this, please smash that subscribe button, leave a review. Um, check us out at AmericanReformer.org. We've got new stuff every single day, um, all on pressing topics of civic and political concern for Christians, Protestant Christians. Um, we hope it's helping you. If you're so moved, please consider supporting us. We're a 501c3. Um, you know, we subsist entirely off of the generosity of our donors, uh, just like you. So we gratefully uh, accept and, and hope for all of your generosity towards us. Um, and until next time, God bless. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.